you found the Farcast, the weekly podcast in its sixth season of helping you understand what's going on in Wall Street, Washington, and the world. Now here's your host, Michael Farr. Welcome to the Farcast. I am Michael Farr. Thanks so much for joining us again this week. It is April the 6th. We have started the second quarter of 2023. We're going to begin to get earnings here for the first quarter. We're waiting for those reports. We've been in a bit of a news doldrum. Haven't heard a lot from the Fed, though some of the Fed speakers recently said, we're going to keep raising rates, but maybe we're not going to be too aggressive about it. I didn't hear any great news there. Some of the economic data are looking a little bit weaker. The jolts number, that job jobs opening number was lower. The employment uh, data, according to ADP survey yesterday, we'll look for uh, the Big Friday uh, non-farm payrolls number to see if it confirms, but it was a good deal weaker too. So uh, is the economy starting to turn? Uh, are the inflation numbers beginning to come down? What does that mean for the fall? And we are also seeing some reports that suggest that indeed lending standards have been tightened at a lot of these smaller and mid-sized banks. Credit standards have been tightened. So after Silicon Valley, we're seeing banks say, oops, we're going to shore up our balance sheets. We're fine, but we're going to make sure that they're more than fine because it looks like we might have a period of rough sledding which means they're not making loans. And when they don't make loans, that slows the supply of money moving out in the economy. And that mostly affects small businesses, small businesses. I mean, uh, IBM is not going to its local bank to borrow money. IBM is going to issue bonds. So it's these smaller companies that do that. And so we've got breaks being applied on the economy from the Federal Reserve and from uh, of, of course, the uh, banking system right now. We'll see how that looks. Politics are busy this week. Matt Leffingwell is going to join us. We've got wonderful economists coming up, but we're going to begin with our great friend, Jim Murio from TJM Institutional Services, a voice of the Chicago Exchange for many years. Uh, uh, you know, just one of the brightest stars in Wall Street sky. Good morning, Jim. Thank you for having me, Michael. It's a great intro. I appreciate it. We're very glad you're here, and we always learn so much. So, Jim, we've got stocks that are doing well, and I'm, I'm even watching the tech stocks, Jim, go uh, start to go down. Bad day for tech stocks yesterday. Tech stocks uh, are, seem to be falling as interest rates are falling, and and I and I'm scratching my head, going, "Wait a minute! The tech stocks are supposed to go up when interest rates go down, based on these discounted present values and future cash flows, but." What's going on? What am I missing? What are you seeing in markets? So I'm having a bathroom redone at my at my home. Um, and my wife assures me that it's going to be fantastic when it's done. But yes. the demolition, the construction and the change is very. Yeah, this has something to do with stocks. OK, you're looking at, looking at me going like, where is he going with this? <laughs> and the, the change is the hard part. Now, stocks so far have yawned about the change because the change right now that's going on in the economy is a big deal. Um, you didn't even mention the ISM numbers, which the uh, the new orders component of it came in very, very low. And that's the most forward looking part of it. So I think the change of the Fed, it's all happening. The red semester came out, I think it was two days ago and talked tough. The market yawned and completely brushed it off. Right now, the Fed funds futures curve is suggesting that from we are, where we are now, regardless if they hike or don't hike, it will be 75 basis points lower just by the end of this year in the Fed funds rate and 200 basis points lower by the end of 2024. So that's 275 to 3% uh, on the Fed funds rate is what the market is predicting right now. So the market is telling us very, very clearly that they're in the process. They've either already overshot or in the process of overshooting with the next rate hike. It doesn't really do you believe matter. that. Do you believe that? I do. I do. I, I mean, again, I, why not? Do? I mean, the, the, the Fed funds curve and the rate curve is certainly not perfect. But they're certainly better prognosticators than the Fed has been. And everyone can come out and say, yeah, we're willing to withstand a lot of pain. We're willing to withstand a lot of pain. But it's like the Mike Tyson thing. Everyone has a plan to get punched. As soon, and we've seen these guys crumble before. I think it was James Bullard in August of uh, 
think it was 07 or 08, where he came out and they were, they were going to raise rate. No, it must have, mustn't have been then. It was 11, probably. They were going to raise rates, and all of a sudden the stock market broke like 8%, and he came out the next day saying, yeah, yeah the but, case for raising rates has changed. Hmm. Yeah, Bullard, Bullard changes his opinion. I mean, Bullard is a, is a particular – I mean, Bullard, Bullard will change uh, if the wind changes. But, okay, I wrote an op-ed this week for uh, CNBC where I said, you do not want the Fed to ease. Uh, and my point is, when the Fed comes into ease, the Fed's not coming into ease because the Fed wants to see if it can get the S&P to 5,000. <laughs> They're coming in to try and save it from disaster, which means we're, it's going to be so ugly. When the Fed comes into ease, things feel awful. So the best thing that could possibly happen uh, is the Fed doesn't have to do anything, that they've engineered this thing perfectly and they could just go quiet and get the hell out of the way for a while. I really don't want the Fed to have to ease. And if they have to do it three times this year, it means that sometime over the summer, it's go we're, we're going to have, it's going to be awful. Oh, of that, there's no question. Now, here's the part that I would push back on what you said, though, is that we know, you and I both know that there's a lag effect of all these rates, yes. whether it be six yes. months, maybe nine months. And some will argue that it's shorter now because the mechanisms within the economy fire off quicker than before. You mentioned- Oh, it's, way, different whole, it's different this time. It's different this time. It's different this time, yeah. exactly. Yeah. But you, by it. the way, you mentioned small business, just to go on a quick tangent here. That to me is one of the most reprehensible things about a boom bust Fed induced cycle is yes. that at the end, when they break it apart, they it always favors the big multinational companies and it always uh, oppresses the uh, small pop mom and pop shops. And that to me is absolutely ridiculous. But so inflation is coming down rather quickly if you look at the pc the ppi and the pce data not, not rather quickly but quickly enough and that to me is just a function of supply chains healing the federal government slowing down in giving money to people to fuel inflation which they seem to be doing for several years despite the fact they kept coming out and saying oh no no we're we don't want inflation yeah well then why are you causing inflation but anyway so now the third shoe to drop is to really feel the punch of the fed hikes and again let's assume that the lag effect is shortened to four to four to six months. So that still means about a third of the hiking cycle is going to be felt in the next few months. So I, yes, I think they've overdone it. I think inflation is coming down. And again, you mentioned easing a couple of weeks ago, maybe months ago, that the Fed funds curve said they were going to hike, they were going to hike, and then they're going to ease a quarter point. No, they're not going to ease a quarter point. They're only going to be easing if flaming timbers are falling from the ceiling, and that's when they're going to put. Uh, push the eases. So the, the 200 points that the market is saying by 20, end of 2024 is much more believable to me than the measly quarter point they said in the, in the, the previous year. And again, I think it's an awful thing if they have to start easing, but I think it's possible. I've said for quite a while, Jim, that I thought that the Fed should pause. The Fed should have paused a while ago. Uh, just and, and, you know, it parallels my feelings that they should have stopped all the stimulus a lot sooner Amen. And they should have paused. Now, I don't mean reversed. I just mean that you and I know and experienced folks who have watched this and economists will all tell you that it takes, look, historically, 12 to 18 months to see the effect of a monetary policy intervention, which means we'd be seeing the beginnings of it right now. And maybe beyond the jawboning, that is what we're seeing, which means they should stop and wait six months Tell everybody we're going to wait six months and see what happens to the data before we still keep putting fuel on this fire. I likened it in my in my op-ed piece to uh, trying to give the heart patient drugs to slow the rapid heart rate and giving it every five minutes until you get the heart rate down. Well, every five minutes until you see the effect, you've you've caused a code blue and you're reaching for the paddles. You know, you have to give the drugs some time to take effect. So I've been in a big pause, but they haven't done it. I wish they'd do it now, but but they could be, it's gonna just, as you say, we're gonna have burning timbers falling and they will, a lot of those will have been caused by overstepping the Fed and they typically overstep. Well, it's so funny is that you, you put, that's a, a perfect metaphor. The tools that they have are blunt and imperfect and the psychological desire to be viewed as doing something outweighs the, the logical um, efficacy path of these tools. And, and that's really frustrating. It almost ensures that they will go in the uh, wrong direction and overdo it in each direction, which by the way, the, the 2021 
the June of 21, I know I, I mentioned this all the time, but I still am absolutely flabbergasted. When I think back of June of 2021, the CPI was already over 5%. The housing market was inarguably uh, on fire and they continued buying bonds. They continued buying mortgage backs to the tune of 250 billion. Like that was just so plain. Like I always argue that their tools are blunt and they overdo it. Well, they knew they were overdoing it then and they continued to overdo it. To me, that, to me, that smacks of something much deeper. I personally think that in the back of their minds, they were rescu- rescuing the heavily indebted states and counties that couldn't possibly make their bills unless they had a long extended period of inflation, which guess what? Now we have a long extended period of inflation. All that being said, the question comes to right now, if if the market believes, and that's what the stock market is telling us, the gold market, the silver market too, is that they believe very quickly the Fed is either going to pause or then start to inject liquidity again, much like you know they did in the not QE with the with the SVB where the round sheet shot up. I don't see how it's not QE. The other thing is every Fed governor tells you, Jim, that they don't want to make the same mistake twice. That's their big deal. They never want to make the same mistake twice. And the big mistake they've made in the past, right, through these big economic downturns has been easing too soon, backing off from their tighter policy too soon. So they don't want to do that. So they're going to stay stubborn. When when I uh, talked with Pat Harker back in the uh, uh, end of January, beginning of February, we gave that speech at University of Delaware, and, and he and I had a chance to chat. He said, Michael, we're going to have more rate hikes, and they're going to stay high for a long time. We're leaving them high. Uh, I understand that's why they want to do it, and they may do it. They may do it. Maybe this just goes on for a while, but you're right. All of those futures charts are telling us they're going to get it wrong. They've gotten it very wrong. And we're just waiting for the burning timbers to start falling, I guess. So as an investor, Jim, what do you do? So here, for there's two things about what the Fed said, and, and then we'll get into that, is that one, they have to, as a point of policy, talk tough right up until the last moment, because it would be silly not to, because you know until they change policy, they can't change policy. And two, it's easy to believe that until the timbers are falling, like you said before. I, don't, I think that to have a big, huge plunge lower. And I've been saying this for quite a while. And I thought 3,800 on the S&P was my downside in the transition. We did meet that kind of um, a couple of weeks ago and we bounced off. And the reason I don't think it's the big plunge is one, I think the Fed is going to be there at the ready. But two, I don't think there's the the lack of respect for risk buildup that's happened over decades. Like we saw it in tech stocks that happened for years back in the around the turn of the century, we saw it in real estate happening for decades, and there was all this position built. So the question becomes: Are there so many people who are overinvested in stocks that they're all going to be rushing for the exits within the next year to push us down another twenty-five percent? And I believe the answer to that is no. So I think the downside is muted or possibly even over. I do want to see some strength and some settlement strength in the S and P and the Nasdaq over the next couple of weeks to confirm that. So I'd say maybe you know a forty-one hundred settle, which we're not very. Uh, no, no, I mean, 4,200 settled in the S&P on a weekly basis, to me, might lead me to believe that there are blue skies ahead. And again, I believe that the recession's coming. That doesn't mean stocks have to do bad. As a matter of fact, stocks can do can do well during recession because of Fed accommodation, unfortunately. There haven't been many periods or many recessions historically where stocks haven't had a bear market. In fact, they're very highly correlated. And you don't think we're going to have one? I mean, because typically, I mean, recession means... Earnings go down. We're seeing earnings estimates or, or forward projections from companies already called lower now, mid single digits, six, seven, eight percent lower on the year for net earnings this year for 2023. Uh, the normal earnings contractions about 20 percent during a recession for the S&P 500. You don't think we're going to see that? You don't think the Fed's going to sit there and be stubborn and not cut and try and let things slow down and sit on its hands too long? They do everything too long, Jim. I think that's what we're seeing right now is the Fed sitting on their hands and waiting too long. And remember, we talk about a correction and that can, we can extend that even to a bear market. We're talking in two different elements of it, and that's uh, it's price and time. And now we're talking about it's, it's April. We've been in a sideways to bear market for, what, you know, 15 months now. Um, five quarters. So we are working things out as we move. Everybody's waiting for this shoe to drop where it's going to be the big, big plunge. And at what point in time do we throw in the towel and say it's not coming? I think we're getting relatively close. Is that reasonable? 
uh, it's reasonable. And you know, you're always reasonable. The question is, will it be right? Uh, there's a lot of reasonable, well, you and I watch this for years. That's not a, that's ladies and gentlemen, that's not a shot at Urio at all. Not at all. Yeah, not at all. Uh, there are a lot of folks out there at uh, Jim uh, and, and myself included who can be very, very reasonable. It's just a matter of whether you, you know, they're reasonable, logical facts. Will they be correct or not? Well, time will tell. I, I, I tend to say that I'm, we'll follow the more middle path and the and the more traditional path. I don't know that we get down to Mike. Uh, I don't know that we get down to Mike Wilson's uh, down th uh, to three thousand on the S and P. That's that seems fairly draconian to me. But but something weaker in the economy and weaker in markets. I'm not sure that I'd uh, discount a bigger plunge. Final word, Jim. Yeah. So in October, I gave a speech in Orleans Investment Conference about how metals could be the big winner in all this thing. And I'm sticking with that. Again, I'm not giving anyone advice. I'm just telling you what I'm doing. I'm investing in gold, right silver, that. gold, silver, and copper. I have been right about that. Not exactly for all the reasons I thought I would. And I'm hoping some of the other reasons will kick in soon. And I'm still uh, relatively uncomfortably long in those three metals. That's funny. I'm uncomfortably long in a couple of different things. And I I'm staying with them. And why I was right with some of those uncomfortable longs you're right. Sometimes the reasons that you think you're going to be right are not the only reasons that you end Amen. up being right. And when that happens, you're not sure that you're going to continue being <laughs> right because you didn't actually call everything that got you to the good place. So um, uh, there are a lot of unknowns in this business. Jim Urio is a managing director at TJM Institutional Services in Chicago. And the CEO and chairman of Brant's of Palatine. If you want the best burger in Chicago, go see Brant's. Mention the forecast and get 10% off. It drives them crazy when you do it. We're going to be Amen. right back with Matt Levingwell for Dan Mahaffey this week to talk politics and what's going on in Washington and how that's going to affect your portfolio. Wonder if we have anything to talk about. Ha! Ah, we'll be right back. We're glad you could join us this week on the Farcast. Now back to your host, Michael Farr. Welcome back to the Farcast. You know, each week we cover Wall Street, Washington, and the world, trying to see how all of these events will affect investors and the economy, your portfolio, and your world. Every week, of course, for six seasons now, Dan Mahaffey has anchored our political commentary position and yet when he's not around and when we are really lucky, we're able to rope in our great friend, Matt Leffingwell, who is a partner with the Tiber Creek Group, used to be at one brief and shining moment with Far Miller and Washington. It was a highlight for Far Miller. Matt, welcome back to the Farcast. Hey, it's great to be here, Michael. Great uh, lobbyist in Washington at Tiber Creek. Uh, he helps shepherd all sorts of folks and issues around Capitol Hill and insiders insider. Uh, you know, uh, Matt, we're watching uh, the, this drama continue in Washington where the Republicans hate the Democrats, the Democrats hate the Republicans, and the Republicans hate the Republicans. Um, we're, you, uh, we've heard rumors of a big New York Times article coming out this weekend, Easter weekend, about Kevin McCarthy, uh, some interviews, uh, and it looks like this is going to be a big article that might change the temperature, really, within the congressional uh, Republicans. What what are you hearing about that? Yeah, I, what I'm hearing is that the New York Times is working on a story that goes back to when the speaker's election was going on, and we all remember the drama that uh, that that entailed. Sixteen different votes. Yeah, exactly, and and there are. A lot of backroom deals cut in order for him to gain the speakership. Uh, the story is allegedly filled with anecdotes about, uh, you know, things he said about other members in order to, you know, curry favor with with some sects of the of the Republican conference. Um, it's really not flattering. Uh, it's alleged that in the article he makes uh, disparaging remarks about other members of the Republican House Republican leadership. Um, this would be a real bombshell. There's been a, a period of relative peace within the House Republican Conference since the Speaker election, um, albeit they've only voted on non-controversial items for the most part, but the House has seemed to be running uh, 
rather you know relatively fun you know in a functional manner <laughs> up to this point um this has been a this is of course been a very fragile speakership and we all knew that going into it with a very small margin of uh with the majority um coming up into a big what what, what what is this they can't stand success we've got to throw a skunk in the middle of the picnic that seemed to be going <laughs> nicely you know i had an uncle like this Every time. I mean, you couldn't get through Thanksgiving dinner. Everything's nice. And then, boom, he'd say it just exactly <laughs> what he shouldn't say. And everything. I mean, why why do we have these self-inflicted wounds shot in the foot by Speaker McCarthy? Is it inevitable? I mean, is this guy going to go one way or the other here? Well, I think I think there were a lot of deals that had to be cut back in uh, in January in order for him to get the speakership. Now, those uh, deals that were cut are coming back to bite him. We, we knew that he was like in, in a lot of back rooms at the time, and we didn't know what was all being said. This this story allegedly helps reveal a lot was being said, and it's going to upset the, the, you know, the peace that we've experienced for the last three months in the conference. You're right, though. You know, like we we're best at shooting our own selves in the foot, and we're coming up in an important um, debate on the debt limit, uh, which has large economic uh, consequences for our country and the world global economy. Um, this, we really didn't have any margin for, uh, for drama and this and something we've got like drama it. again. Great. That's just yeah. what the American people were hoping. It wasn't enough to have president Trump in New York this past week, appearing before a judge on how many counts, 34 different 34 in, counts. Yeah. Indictments. And yeah. I, I had people asking me, Matt, ahead of the time, uh, ahead of that saying, uh, don't you think this is ridiculous? Isn't this awful? Don't you think this is horrible? And my answer was, I don't know. And I, and people got angry at me. They said, what do you mean you don't know? This is, I said, I haven't seen the indictments. I mean, right. I, I need to see what they're trying to indict him about. And now I've seen the indictments and it does look pretty stupid to me uh, now that I've seen the indictments. So yeah. Uh, the president now has his cause celebre and, and he can be the victim again on the stage, as everybody's saying. And uh, Greg Valliere suggests that this will get former President Trump the Republican nomination. I mean, he's surging ahead of DeSantis in the polls. Will that last? Do you think that happens? Everybody, everybody is saying that we're going to have a Trump-Biden election again. The Democrats are thinks this is a great thing because Trump can't win a general election. And Greg Valliere says, be careful before you count out Donald Trump. Be careful what you wish for with Trump. I certainly don't count him out. Uh, I I never count him out, and he has a way of spinning, uh, you know, huge, uh, you know, huge challenges into it, you know, into good publicity for himself. I mean, so thus far, I think this has galvanized his base even more. I don't know though that the base is a very finite number though, and 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 I don't think that you know going through a trial isn't necessarily help grow those numbers into general election victory numbers. So I, you know, it's really early on. We'll see how this unfolds. I think your commentary about like whether this is good or bad, you know, we have. I think you and I both have faith and uh, respect for our you know judicial system. We have yes. to see the layout. And I, th you know, if if nothing else, I think this is encouraging to, that you know no one is above the law, and I and uh, you know I I think it is disappointing in my own opinion to see him you know go after the judge for example before he's even you know walks into a courtroom, um, and then secondly talk about defunding the law enforcement entity the DOJ and the FBI. I mean this is something that we ran against the Democrats on back you know back in the last election was the you know the defund police movement that you know emanated out of uh, you know the uh, out of the, you know 2020 June uh, riots. So it's it's a really confusing message and it and it, at the end of the day it eclipses the Republicans ability to talk about ideas. Now all these house committees for example are focusing on going after the DA in New York for so we're not we're not actually going to be propelling an agenda. We're going to be propelling Donald Trump in our leg in our legislative calendar. It's just that part I think is extremely disappointing. I love it when the big this was two years ago when the big defund the police rally. I think it was in Minneapolis got out of hand and they called the police. I, <laughs> I thought that was fabulous. That was that was my favorite. That was my favorite. Um, uh, so, but, you know, and I don't know, I find this very frustrating. How's this defund the police working out in New York crime, Chicago, San Francisco? You pick the major city, Baltimore. I mean, uh, the police, one, 
you know, they're not enough of them to fill shifts. And yeah. two, they don't want to get into a serious situation because they can't respond appropriately if they can't respond within politically correct guidelines. Um, so hands tied and crimes running rampant. That, this is not good for cities. This is not good for economies, folks. You need a state, safe, stable marketplace in which to transact business. A lot of these major cities don't have them. All right, let's move on here, Matt. We had the Taiwanese uh, president uh, come through the United States and met with uh, Speaker McCarthy, uh, President Tsai Ing-wen, uh, and she said uh, that democracy is under threat. China has responded. I, I, China's responded and said this meeting was awful. And, and basically they said, you can't talk to her. And that sounded just so third grade to me, Matt. I mean, yeah. that's I don't like her, so you can't talk to her. If you're going to be my friend, you can't talk to her. I mean, that's what I heard. I understand politics is a little more nuanced, but it felt like third grade playground stuff. Right. No, I, th I, th I think that's exactly right. I mean, I unfortunately, there are some limitations that U.S. law, uh, you know, uh, diplomatic, you know, it has diplomatic limitations on what, you know, the U.S. is able to do in, in terms of Taiwan. However, China has really isolated Taiwan, uh, you know, countries where they have spread their, you know, their foreign aid, uh, you know, including like Honduras and countries in Africa, um, are really coalescing around China. And we are a country that has a tradition of supporting, you know, democracies across the world that even even if they don't necessarily um, if they're not necessarily more economically advantageous. But democracy has been, a, you know, a centerpiece of our, our foreign policy for, you know, since our founding. And this is some, this is a you know, this is a place where Democrats and Republicans are rallying around Taiwan. I don't I think, you know, did McCarthy in a, in a, make a mistake? Do you think was this did no. they overstep? Is this going to I mean, how do things back out? Uh, uh, how do we show support for Taiwan? And not go into direct conflict with China. Is that possible? Where are we going to end up with China? I, I think I think we're on an inevitable collision course at some point. I don't know if it's imminent. I don't know if it's you know ten years down the line. I think everybody has a different opinion on timeline, but I think most people agree that it's inevitable. This is a big slow co rolling car wreck, in your opinion. You're correct. Yes. I'm going to jump back. Do you think we end up with Trump Biden in the next 2024 election? Please tell uh, me. It cer certainly feels that way right oh, now. God. <laughs> it certainly feels that way right and now. And Greg Valliere this morning saying that Kamala Harris will indeed be his running mate, that there's no way that he gets rid of her. I think it'd be a very at this point, I think early on, had they made a change, I think, you know, that would have made much more sense. But now I I, I believe, you know, you know, dumping somebody on the ticket just only exhibits weakness and going into a general election with Donald Trump. That is not a good position to be in. A vote for President Biden is a vote for President Harris. <laughs> well, you know, we'll see about that. I don't I but I, 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 do, I don't know that. Harris what do you mean? We'll see about that. I mean, <laughs> look, I watched, I watched a, I watched a speech uh, that was taped. Uh, oh, I'm going to say it was ten years ago, five or ten years ago. Joe Biden giving a speech ten years ago. Strong. He wasn't stuttering during the speech ten years ago. He wasn't. It was a really good speech. I mean, I didn't like some of the things he said in that speech, sure. but it was a good, forceful speech. I walk and watched him walk in and walk out. So his gait has changed. His yeah. speech pattern yeah. has That's changed. Sure. This is, you know, everybody's saying, oh, he's always been that way. No, he hasn't. Google him, go online, watch right. an old Senator Biden's speech and listen to how he did it. This is different. So when I say a vote for Biden, I wish President Biden nothing but goodwill. I say a prayer, you know, Absolutely. for the president of the United States every day. Yep. Yep. Um, we, everybody should say a prayer for the president of the United States every day. But- I mean, I also, it's like myself, I'm going to turn 62 in a couple of weeks here. And as much as I don't feel 62 and I go to the gym and do my push-ups and, and, and I feel great, I do have mirrors in my house. <laughs> I, <do. laughs> I know what I look like, for God's sakes. I know I'm getting, I got it. Why don't they put some more mirrors in the White House? Mr. President, there's, yeah. you can serve on a corporate board in this country after you're 70, 72 years old. You're out. Why? 
because the liability is too high for the corporation. What's going on, Matt? I, I, I think the Democrats hesitated. I think there was serious talk about having a replacement candidate on the ticket and they couldn't coalesce about anybody. And frankly, the the Republicans at this point, with you know, taking Trump out of the equation, the Democrat the Republicans have a much deeper bench than the Democrats, frankly, do. Not that you'll get to that bench, or will you get Not to that? Not that you'll get to that bench, but but the Repu- the the Democrats- does Georgia does Georgia prove to be real? Does this Georgia case against President and does it will it have? I think that's the most credible. I think that has the most credible. That is the most credible case currently out there right now. Yes. Does it? Does it? Okay, but is he Teflon? It is. is I think Donald he's Teflon. Teflon. I think he's Teflon with his base. Matter. Yes. Oh, with yes. his base. Yes. But in a in a uh, in a in a general election, you think after well, that, that I mean, getting, the nomination? That gets back to the age issue. I mean, does he like? I mean, Donald Trump certainly seems to have the energy and the and you know and the wherewithal to like withstand going through a presidential election again. I don't know that Biden, uh, you know, exhibits this same kind of strength going through that rigorous process. So I got to tell you, I still don't understand the desire. I have plenty of energy. I really do. Uh, I know. And I do not you have the energy. <laughs> you just turned 45 years old. I do not have the energy that I had at 45. I got plenty of energy, but it's different from 45. And if yeah, I don't think absolutely. it's going to be different, you know, 15 years from now, right? 15 years from now when I'm, you know, 70, what, 75, 77 years old, it's going to be different. And it's not going to get better, folks. I'm getting older. And that's a blessing. I'm thrilled to get older. Uh, it's a privilege that some of my friends have not had. So I'm very grateful for it. But there's a point. I don't want to be president of the United States right now. What an awful job. I don't understand why these people want to do this. It just it blows my mind that they but I, why you would want to do it at 75 years old is beyond me. I mean, can the ego be that large? I already know the answer. You don't have to do that. Matt, what are you going to be watching in the next couple of weeks? Congress is out right now on break, on uh, Easter uh, Passover break. What happens next? When does the debt ceiling really get hot? Well, you know, Yellen initially testified it'd be in June, but, you know, others have testified it'd be in August. My best guess is that they, if necessary, they they do a short-term extension to September 30th when government funding runs out. So you create this fiscal cliff of of events. where a real negotiation will have to happen and compromises have to be made. But this is my biggest concern this year because McCarthy is very concerned about his own, you know, survivability and, and, uh, and it's, and it's uh, worse, you know, like the clock is starting to run out. It's a huge concern. It's a huge concern for the country. It was not, uh, it did not work out well in 2011 and it's feeling like we're following the same script. Finally, Matthew, you have a friend who is a faithful Farcast fan That's and listener. Exactly right. That's exactly right. Kelly Hitchcock. She's a faithful. Kelly Hitchcock. Yeah, and she is about. Of course, I know Kelly Hitchcock. She's been a wonderful, faithful fan listener for a long That's time. Right. And she's about, she's about to have a baby, and oh. she's a former colleague of mine, and she's a huge fan of uh, the show. So I just want to oh. give a huge shout out to to Kelly. So. <laughs> and a and a huge shout out to you, Matthew Leffingwell, partner at Tiber Creek Group in Washington D.C. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, please stay with us. Michael Farr and the Farcast are proud to support Heroes, Inc. Heroes supports the spouses and children of law enforcement officers and firefighters who gave their lives in the line of duty to the greater Washington, D.C. community. Their singular goal is to honor the supreme sacrifice made by these individuals by caring for their families. Heroes' work begins within 24 hours of the tragic loss and continues indefinitely. We invite you to learn more about Heroes' mission at heroes.org. We hope that you will consider supporting Heroes as they endeavor to honor those who protect us. That's heroes.org. Heroes, here for you, here for good. And now, back to the Farcast and your host, Michael Farr. We hope you're enjoying this week's edition of the Farcast. Please share us with friends and colleagues. And now, back to your host, Michael Farr. Welcome back to the Farcast. I am Michael Farr. It is the sixth 
day of April. Terrific forecast this morning. Jim Murio and Matt Leffingwell with views of Wall Street and the world. And as we move to segment three, uh, a terrific treat for you this morning, ladies and gentlemen, if I do say so myself, uh, we're going to have the Dream Team join us, the Far Miller and Washington Dream Team, Keith Davis and Scott Trout, Stroud. Uh, Keith Davis is a Partner at Farm Miller in Washington, has been with the firm for over 20 years as our economist, a senior analyst, covered the banking sector, uh, and absolutely, I promise, one of the smartest guys I've ever gotten to talk to about anything in my life. He's also funny as he can be. Scott Stroud, head of fixed income at Farm Miller in Washington. I've known him for 30 years uh, in the bond markets. Also, very insightful in terms of the economy. Very bright guy. One hell of a good bond manager, I promise. And uh, funny as a rubber crutch, as we used <laughs> to say in the old days. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Uh, we're Thank you. really glad you're here. So, you know, we're, we're taking a look and trying to make sense of this economy, guys, and what it's going to mean for our listeners uh, with everything else that's going on in markets. We saw the ADP number showed a slowdown in job creation, 145,000 jobs versus 210 expected new jobs. Slowdown in the JOLTS numbers, those job opening numbers were down <coughs> about five or 600,000 job openings or job wanted listings anyway. Uh, and then the weaker manufacturing um, numbers that came out pointing to a slowing economy, jobless claims, this morning we're up higher than expected. So, um, and then every we're also seeing expectations for the Fed to really cut rates before the end of the year. Three rate cuts, what Wall Street's expecting. A lot of this doesn't make sense to a lot of our a uh, lot of our listeners. Uh, let me start with uh, let me start with Keith. Uh, what do you make is the is the, with these jobless numbers and PMI and all of that stuff? Is the economy slowing, Keith? Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think the data has started to show that the economy is slowing. You're right about manufacturing. The housing market is obviously very weak. Uh, the labor market is now finally starting to show some weakness. Although with that uh, weekly jobless claims number this morning, I would say there's a caveat there. Uh, there's a change in methodology that I haven't looked into um, that resulted in a... Um, um, a change in the number for last week. And I think it affected this week as well. So I'll, I'll have to see if that's a true number, but I think it's pretty clear that the economy is slowing. I think it's clear that the, the effects of the Fed rate hikes, um, which have you know accumulated to about four and a half percent now, four and three quarters percent, are having the desired effect. Uh, I think the new factor that's changed in the last few weeks is the banking crisis has caused the banks to be very careful. Uh, right. So uh, the credit impulse has changed. Um, banks don't want to lend so much. They could be subjected to higher capital, higher liquidity requirements. Um, and so they're all looking to see what happens. And while they do, they're tightening the purse strings and that can have a very, uh, very negative effect on the economy. Well, some of these are self-imposed right now, right? Some of these are saying we need to be safe because things look shaky before, you know, the, we, there's sort of new outside rules to make things tighter. They're kind of they're kind of doing it to themselves. And we pointed out earlier that that does hurt smaller business. Keith, uh, before I move to Scott on the on on the banks, uh, what does it make you think about all of those banking stocks and banks as a sector? Uh, can they still make money? Will they be as profitable if they're not lending as much money ag as aggressively? I think it's going to be very difficult for banks to post earnings growth going forward. There's just a number of headwinds now. Um, you know, loan growth is one factor, but they also have to contend with deposits leaving and a rising cost of deposits. Uh, the housing market, obviously, as I said, isn't doing great. So mortgage originations aren't great. Uh, capital markets activity isn't that great. Um, so there aren't a lot of answers right now for how banks will grow revenue going forward. And then, of course, you have, if the economy does turn, you'll have credit losses going up, which could be a huge drag uh, on the bottom line of the banks as well. So it's going to be a tough slog for them. And the bank's valuations have come in pretty dramatically, uh, partially uh, in response to that credit crunch um, related to those bank uh, failures. But also a recognition that, you know, the path forward is going to look very difficult for revenue growth. 
One of the confusing things to me, Keith, and it's just a question I've had. I haven't had a chance to ask you, but um, the, the deposits leaving the banks, I look at money I've gotten banks and the interest rates or the, the interest I'm getting on my money deposited at banks and, and various accounts, even their money market accounts, are much lower than anywhere else. It's not any lack of faith that I have in the banks. And I think this is true for most depositors. It's that they can get a better rate elsewhere. And so why wouldn't the banks bite the bullet and go ahead and pay more interest and keep those deposits? I mean, is it analogous? I always say it's much, much easier, much more cost efficient to keep a client than to go out and get a new client. It costs money to go out and get a new client at Farm Miller. I want to keep the clients I have. Is it analogous at the banks? Uh, why wouldn't they just pay more interest and keep those deposits? Well, they're not going to do it voluntarily. They'll do it if they need to do it to keep. If they're losing assets, I mean, if they're losing deposits, that doesn't sound voluntary. Don't you have to pay to keep them at some point? Uh, but you have to remember the the banks were washing deposits for a very long time. They had you know more deposits than they knew what to do with, uh, and so part of the, the um, you know the deposits leaving, they're not going to care that much about. Um, so they're not going to be quick to reprice those deposits. Um, if they did reprice them very quickly, that would absolutely crush their margins. Uh, one of the big uh, sources of, of revenue for banks is net interest margins on right. loans. Right. Right. If they have to pay a lot more for deposits and it hits them very quickly, um, that's going to absolutely crush earnings. So they're going to do it very reluctantly. They're only going to do it when they need to do it. But you're right. They're going to have to do it. Um, otherwise, <laughs> deposits are going to leave. Yeah, and otherwise the deposits leave. But you know, why pay more for the deposits to keep the money at the bank if you're not going to lend it out the other side of the bank? Um, so they're, they're kind of caught here, which sort of does keep pressure on the bank's earnings and therefore price performance over time. It'll be interesting to see how the changes in book value, which is basically the way you look at the valuation. You don't look at a PE earnings really, price to earnings multiple on a bank. You look at their book value, uh, take a look at that. All right. So, uh, Scott, how is all of this affecting the bond market? Well, we've seen a, a great decline in, in interest rates as, as this uh, economic slowdown uh, starts to bite. And that, that is uh, pretty uh, well seen in all the economic stats, uh, as you mentioned, all coming in slower and lower. So what do you think about bonds in here? I mean, are, are, are you think that the bond market is the bond market is telling us telling us right now that things are still what not as good the the 10 year to 2 year inversion is one of those signs for recession that has narrowed right the difference between the 10 and the 2 year still inverted but it's narrowed well, it's narrowed quite a bit. It's probably been halved at least to minus uh, 49, 50 basis points from probably a high of negative 110. There's great tension. Someone's going to blink, um, but the market thinks the economy is really headed south. Maybe I'm not giving enough credence to the debt crisis. And, and we're looking fight. for the Fed. To, we're looking for the Fed to ease three times this year, while the Fed is telling us that they might even have another hike. Why is there a disconnect between what the markets, what does that tell you? You've been watching this a long time, long as I have, Scott. What does it tell you when the Fed tells you one thing and the market's telling you another? Truth usually comes from the Fed. Uh, don't fight the Fed. It's very funny. The market can change its opinion very quickly. Uh, all of a sudden, oh, we're going to rethink that. You see it in GDP projections within a week to the next week. Market do you think, can change do you, do you think the Fed's going to cut rates this year? Towards the end of the year, I could see a 25 uh, as throwing a bone, but maybe maybe the market is perceiving that the debt ceiling crisis as being more contentious and unresolved uh, going past the, uh, the deadline. I wrote uh, an op-ed for CNBC this week suggesting that if and when the Fed eases, it's not going to be a happy time. The Fed is not going to ease just to see if they can send stock prices higher. The Fed's only going to ease if we are in a really extreme and negative um, and kind of semi-crisis to crisis economic situation. That's when the Fed eases. Keith, you think that the Fed really may ease uh, three times this year, maybe even more. Why do you think that? 
Well, I, I don't think it's going to happen right away. I, I do think that they're going to be um, very reluctant to do anything at all on the easing side as long as this um, debt as long as this debt limit crisis is going on. So I, I think maybe they'll hike once more, um, thinking they can sneak that in. Um, after that, within the next three or four months, I think the economic data will become pretty clear that the economy is stopping uh, on a dime. I mean, it's, it's really going to slow down, I believe. And so um, right now, the Fed funds futures are pricing in three cuts, as you said, by the end of the year. Uh, and that would take it to about 4%. Um, my guess would be that if the Fed is forced to cut, they might do it even a little faster than that. So if the data is very alarming, I don't think they would go 25 basis points at a time. They'd probably uh, try to get to where they're going a little bit quicker. Um, so, you know, sorry, okay. Uh, no, no, no. I think that's, I think that's an excellent point. Uh, let's wrap it up because we're now just pretty much out of time. But if we, if we remember uh, from the first segment of the forecast today and the second segment, particularly the second segment with Leffingwell, as we're discussing politics in this upcoming presidential election, uh, all of the drama and whether we end up with a Biden-Trump election uh, again, which is just absolutely unthinkable to me. It just, I mean, 330 some odd million people in this country, and these are the two we're going to do again. I don't believe we did them the first time, but this is the best we got. I mean, it's just maddening to me. But anyway, uh, I try not to get too political, but geez, gosh. Um, uh, so it, what does this mean when you look at where the economy will be coming into that uh, 2024 November election, it sounds like we could be back in expansion mode, which would favor the Democratic incumbent, wouldn't it? Uh, you know, yeah, it's very possible that we'll have a short uh, recession if we have one. That's what most people seem to think. Um, I'm not so sure. I think it's possible that it could be a little deeper. Okay. Uh, but going out into next year, th things get pretty hazy. Um, for the remainder of this year, I think the market particularly the equity market, is a little too optimistic. I think um, they're looking for the soft landing, uh, the Fed to be able to thread this needle, which is going to be very difficult to do. So um, I would be a little cautious in the near term, defensive. Um, as, as for next year, I think I don't want to be on the record predicting anything yet. <laughs> don't want to be on the record predicting anything yet. Uh, mm -hmm. Uh, what did Yogi Berra said? Something about the future being hard to predict uh, because it happens in the future. Uh, something obvious like that. Scott, you probably know the line. No? Yeah. Uh, the future is uncertain. That's usual yeah. ridiculous phrase. But I think Fed credibility, Fed legacy are two different things. And I think they're going to have to deal with both. Uh, the reputational uh, impact of acting or not acting. Yeah. Going to be going to be very interesting to watch. So from the uh, chief econo economist um, and head of fixed income at Farr Miller, uh, you're hearing a bit of caution and what it would mean if the markets are right and the Fed ends up having to ease three times, cut three times before year end. That, that's going to be kind of ugly as it goes out. You know, what, you, what happens with economies, folks, is they expand to the point of inelasticity and then they begin to contract. On the flip side, they contract to the point of inelasticity and they begin to expand. So uh, we're seeing the contraction in its early phases here. Things are coming in. The data are changing. The numbers are coming down. They're not there yet. And if they hit that wall and the Fed has to start fueling things again to save us from uh, those dire situations, they'll expand at some point in the future. The timing will be important to the politicians the rest of us will all survive. Thank you so much for being with us on another segment of the Farcast, where we cover Wall Street, Washington, and the world for the Farcast and for our producer, Harry Jennings. We wish you a wonderful Passover and Easter, a wonderful time with your families and rest and relaxation. We will be back again next week with a brand new Farcast, doing our best to help explain it all to you as we cover Wall Street. Washington, and the world. For the Farcast, I'm Michael Farr. Happy Passover, happy Easter. See you next week. Bye. That's a wrap for this episode of the Farcast. Thanks to our guests, Jim Urio and Matt Leffingwell, and our scheduled special guest, Dana Peterson. 
who woke up with laryngitis this morning and wasn't able to join us, but she will be scheduled again in coming weeks. And a special thanks to Keith Davis and Scott Stroud for jumping in and helping out on short notice. The Farcast comes to you weekly and is produced by Michael Farr and Harry Jennings and is available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and all major podcast platforms. We love hearing from you every week, and you can reach us at hjennings at farmmiller.com. Let us know any questions you have and topics you'd like to hear us cover. We would like to remind you that the Farcast podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered legal or financial advice. The information, statements, comments, views, and opinions expressed or provided in this podcast, including by speakers who are not offices of employees or agents of Hightower Advisors or Far Miller in Washington, are not necessarily those of Hightower Advisors, Far Miller in Washington, or any firm any of our guests may represent. Any mention of a specific security should not be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell, and please be aware that past performance is not a guide to the future of any security, index, fund, manager, or strategy. We strongly recommend you review with a financial professional before you make any investment decision. And if we can be of assistance at Farm Miller in Washington, please reach out to me at hjennings at farmiller.com. We are here to help, and, and I'll be happy to put any of our listeners in touch with one of our investment professionals for a complimentary review of your portfolio and your investment goals. Take care, stay safe, and stay healthy. Join us in coming weeks with our special guests, Liz Young, Jenny Harrington, and more fan favorites. Go beyond the headlines each week with the Farcast, Wall Street, Washington, and the world. Farm Miller in Washington is a group comprised of investment professionals registered with Hightower Advisors, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. Some investment professionals may also be registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member FINRA, and SIPC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. Farm Miller in Washington and Hightower Advisors, LLC have not independently verified the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Farm Miller in Washington and Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates make no representations or warranties expressed or implied as to the accuracy or completeness of the information or for the statements or errors or omissions or results obtained for the use of this information. Farm Miller in Washington and Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates assume no liability for any action made or taken in reliance on or relating in any way to the information. This podcast and materials contained herein were created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of the authors and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates. Farm Miller in Washington and Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates do not provide tax or legal advice. This material was not intended or written to be used or presented to any entity as tax or legal advice. Clients are urged to consult their tax or legal advisor or related questions.